The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. Earn up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase every day. Then grow it at 4.50% annual percentage yield when you open a savings account with Apple Card. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card subject to credit approval. Savings available to Apple Card owners subject to eligibility. Savings accounts provided by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, member FDIC. Terms apply. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly, it's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Every pandemic starts as a local disease. The question is, how does a local disease become a global disease? And that can only happen if humans are involved. Hello and welcome to this new History Extra podcast series, The Black Death. I'm Ellie Cawthorn and this is episode two. If you're going to tell the story of the Black Death, where exactly should you begin? Well, that's a big question, especially since it's a story that is being very much rewritten right at the moment. But nevertheless, that's the question that we're going to be grappling with in today's episode, as we take a look at what the very latest research can tell us about where the Black Death originated and how it spread to engulf large portions of the globe. What makes Black Death studies so exciting is that it's a hugely dynamic and fast-moving field at the moment. This area of history is still in flux, with new papers being released all the time, shedding new light on the mechanisms and movement of this pandemic. And one of the people pushing this research forward is Monica Green. She's a historian of medicine who specialises in the medieval world, and she's currently working at the cutting edge of Black Death research. That's why I thought Monica would be the perfect person to give us the lowdown on the latest thinking about the spread of plague and where it came from. When you ask most historians what got them into a subject, they have a fairly simple answer. 
But Monarch is a bit different because it wasn't initially a fascination with the Black Death that got Monarch into this work, but in fact, a real frustration with it. The problem with the Black Death is there was a 30-year-long debate about what caused it. And when you don't know the cause, when you don't know a biological cause, then everything, that becomes a black hole in the story. You can throw all kinds of theories into it, but there's no way of testing them because you have no evidence. Uh, As a historian of medicine, as a medievalist, I have to be able to talk about the Black Death, but I had spent most of my career being um, frustrated about not being able to tell a coherent story. But in the years since Monica first found herself so annoyed by that black hole at the centre of Black Death studies, our understandings of what caused the pandemic have been transformed. And one of those transformations is the result of being able to answer one of the most simple questions of all. What exactly caused the Black Death? So the question of the, 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 the cause, the biological cause of it, there has been a, a transformation, an absolute sea change. And that has to do with um, a, a paleogenetics, so a, a, a kind of genetic uh, analysis of looking for the molecular uh, material remains of the organism, the pathogen that, that would have caused a disease. And simply what it means is you can take modern laboratory techniques, you can take it back into the past. You can take it back 100 years, you can take it back 500 years, you can take it back 10,000 years now. And that is astounding. And the initial breakthrough, the first pathogen that was completely sequenced from ADNA, so ancient DNA, was the Black Death. So the development of new genetic technologies meant that experts could now study ancient DNA, or ADNA. This would prove to be a huge development for understanding the Black Death. But first, paleogeneticists needed to get their hands on some ancient DNA. And that's where the archaeologists came in. So right in the middle of of London, very near the, the Tower of London, there is a cemetery that was created when they heard that a great plague was coming in 1348 or very early 1349. They used it as a burial site. And then when the epidemic passed, they closed it and they sold the land. So we know exactly the date of creation and the date of closure of that cemetery. So the site itself was perfectly dated. And then the science swooped in and established what was in the bodies. So the people buried there, um, they, they retrieved several samples of Yersinia pestis. So that's the bacterium that causes plague. This diagnosis, if you like, of Yersinia pestis as the cause of Black Death helped to settle a long-running debate. Because up until that point, historians had had to rely on historical sources to come up with a biological diagnosis. And while some medieval sources seemed to quite clearly describe symptoms that suggested Yersinia pestis, others muddied the water somewhat. Some of the symptoms match and other symptoms don't. And the thing is, is that before the late 19th century, nobody will be working in a germ theory explanatory mode. 
So they will describe it in terms of miasma. They will describe it in terms of carbuncles. They'll describe it in terms of fevers. But fevers, you know, describing it as as fever, but without a thermometer to say kind of how severe the, the fever is. Their mode of description was never going to satisfy us about what they were talking about as kind of the, the physical entity that they were seeing uh, in front of them. Um, so that's, that's, that's a big part of why there was a debate already among historians. Yes, some of the symptoms completely match what we would expect bubonic plague or pneumonic plague uh, uh, to look like, and some of them didn't. After decades of piecing together the story of the plague from historical records, developments in genetics appeared like a hammer blow to the field and one that changed the game for historians, leading them to reassess their work. One of the amazing things is that this huge historical question has shifted entirely out of the field of history. And so that's where I come in is... I'm a historian. I was actually trained as a historian of science. So I know how to look at what scientists do. And so I start reading their studies. I'm reading their letters to the editor where they're complaining about <laughs> other labs work. And, you know, and I'm, and I'm, you know, munching on my popcorn all along. As a historian, I'm sitting there thinking, this all has huge historical ramifications. So where do we come in? Uh, where do we as, as historians come in? Once we have biological criteria for is this or is this not Yersinia pestis, once we can prove, yes, it is Yersinia pestis, then we can say, oh, okay, now we should be looking for these kinds of symptoms. Now we should look for these kinds of vectors. So asking that, that's a what question of how does the science then come back into history? The identification of the bacteria responsible for Black Death, Yersinia pestis, is really important because it allowed historians like Monica to completely reassess the story of the plague, how it spread and where it originated. It also allows Monica and her peers to see how the disease itself evolved over time. When you have a a portion of the genome, depending on which portion it is, you can say what the organism is. So you can say this is a banana, this is an ant, this is a gorilla or it's a single-celled pathogen. So that, that was the initial work that was being done for a number of years. So as I said, the, the genetics work first started being published in 1998. They were just publishing fragments of the genetic material that they found. The big transformation in the London uh, study that came out in 2011 was that they published the whole genome. Once you have the whole genome, then you can compare that to every other genome you have from anywhere in the world, and you can create a family tree. These family trees are called phylogenetic trees by those in the know, and they allow experts to track the evolution of the disease and the development of new strains. I think almost all listeners now will have seen phylogenetic trees in reports about the strains of the SARS virus. So, for example, when Omicron came out, Immediately, there were, it's actually the day that, that, that the study was announced, there were phylogenetic trees showing that Omicron was a new branch of, of that family tree. So that's, that's all phylogenetic trees are. They're just family trees. As ever more ancient and modern samples of Yersinia pestis are sequenced, experts can begin to build up a picture 
of how the disease changed over time. Every time you have a new genome published, whether it's modern or ancient, it gives you more information about the evolutionary history of the whole species. So already by the time the 2011 study came out, I think there were maybe a dozen modern genomes of Yersinia pestis that had been published. And so then they're able to take the 14th century sample and say, this is where it fits on the tree, which is radically transformative in thinking about the history of this disease in actual concrete historical time. So you can, instead of speculating, well, maybe this this new branch diverged 6,000 years ago, maybe it diverged 100 years ago. I mean, and that's kind of the range of speculation that they were working with because they didn't know how to calculate the clock, the molecular clock. And again, we historians, we're all about chronology. So anyway, that was, that was a huge, huge deal. And, and for me, that has transformed just really everything that we can now say about the history of the Black Death as, as a pandemic and the history of plague generally is we can now be specific in watching the organism develop over time. And this is why I was so keen to speak to Monica for this series. Because while we're going to be focusing mainly on the wave of Black Death that decimated Europe in the 1340s, it's really key to understand that this wasn't just some isolated outbreak. In fact, it had much older antecedents. In 2015, this was something that that nobody had anticipated. Yersinia pestis was retrieved from Bronze Age samples. The Bronze Age study, which was coming from a uh, uh, an area where there are no written records, there's there are no uh, systems of writing at that point, saying, "Look, here's plague." And it's moving around in, in all of these populations. It's moving back and forth across northern Eurasia for centuries, for actually millennia. So right now, the oldest sample we have of Yersinia pestis is about five, 6,000 years old. And it is estimated that the organism itself, so kind of from the time it, it, it became a new species, up till the present day, is probably about 7,000 years. As well as identifying these long roots of plague, genetic studies have also begun to alter ideas about where it originated. All of the um, Bronze Age, late Neolithic samples are coming from northern Eurasia. So from China, Russia. Actually, this was just published a couple of weeks ago from England. There's a a new Bronze Age sample that's come from from England. So it was already widely disseminated then. Can we call those pandemics? We we know absolutely nothing right now about the circumstances of transmission. That's just ongoing research. So all of this is to say is that how we think about the the prior history of of Yersinia pestis has again it's been utterly transformed. We just this longer history that we have but also the clear indications that this is a disease that regularly moves around. And it moves around clearly in this particular northern Eurasian environment. So is there any reason to think that it ever stopped moving around in this northern Eurasian environment? And the answer is no. Looking at the rare Bronze Age samples that Monica mentioned there, it's really difficult to tell what impact the Black Death actually had on populations in this early period. With the late Neolithic and Bronze Age plague, we cannot say at this point 
Are we looking at evidence for pandemics where there's really massive human morbidity and mortality all, all at the same time? Or are we looking at some kind of slow creeping thing that it's moving through, let's say, rodent populations and only once in a blue moon does it happen to get into a human population? Almost all or maybe all of the late Neolithic and Bronze Age uh, recoveries have been individuals. Um, so there's there's not mass graves that have been found yet. So we don't know the mechanisms. But there was a more significant outbreak of Yersinia pestis, much before the wave of Black Death in the 1340s. This was called the Justinianic Plague, and it tore through societies around the Mediterranean and the Near East in waves beginning in the 6th century. If we look at the much longer history of plague, incorporating both the Black Death of the 1340s and the much earlier Justinianic plague, we can begin to piece together some clues about the longer story of Yersinia pestis. When we look at the Black Death and we look at the Justinianic plague together, we see that the strains of plague that are still alive today that are most closely related to the strains that were involved in the 6th to 8th century plague and medieval and early modern plague. The strains that are alive today that are most closely related to both of those pandemics are in an, uh, a single area, and that is the Tian Shan Mountains, that and the, the uh, Jungar Basin. So it's an area that on a modern map is at the uh, juncture between China and Kyrgyzstan. So why do we find the ancestors of these strains in Eurasia? Monica thinks that the answer could lie in a certain wildlife species that flourishes in this particular ecological environment. And that is marmots. Marmots are, are among the biggest rodents in, in the world. And they have a very particular lifestyle. They're burrowing rodents. They hibernate um, for uh, usually more than, than, than half the year. The Justinianic plague, as we normally talk about it, happened in the Mediterranean. The Black Death, as we normally talk about it, happened in the Black Sea in the Mediterranean. How do we get a marmot disease from Central Eurasia all the way over to the Mediterranean? So that's what we have to explain. How did this happen? How, how did this organism from a very specific ecological environment get into a completely different or into multiple different uh, ecological environments so that it ends up in killing humans in London. I mean, so basically that's, that's a way to distill it is say, how do we get from Kyrgyzstan to London before there are airplanes? Yes, we have the branch that gets to Europe, but we also have three other branches that are created at the same time. And those are all in Asia or they're, they're, they're still um, associated with Asia. But as a historian, you have to say, okay, well, what's happening in Kyrgyzstan? And it has to have happened before the Black Death. So we have a date for the Black Death. We can say um, in the Golden Horde, there's clearly an outbreak that's going on by 1346. It gets into the Black Sea in 1347, and it reaches Europe by late 1347, 1348. Okay, so that chronology, we have ample evidence. That chronology has not changed. But if all of these other events 
happened before that, then we must be looking at an earlier period. So again, what we do as historians is chronology. Um, And so I'm looking at this and I'm saying, wait a minute. And the geneticists themselves, remember they have their molecular clocks, which are not very precise. I call them molecular sundials. They say, well, maybe this event and the, the 2013 study, and I give them full credit for this, they called it the Big Bang. So it's like, boom, just this sudden explosion, this push of your Yersinia pestis into all these different directions. What caused the Big Bang and when did the Big Bang occur? The geneticists say, well, it might have occurred maybe in the 13th century, maybe even in the 12th century. And I, as a historian, I'm saying, whoa, 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 well, wait a minute. What's going on in the 13th century? Because again, we're still looking for mechanism of spread. So if we're looking for this mechanism of spread, a Big Bang moment that happened in the 13th or 14th century that helped this marmot-carried disease suddenly leap across into human populations and infect vast swathes of the globe, what do we find? I, as a medieval historian, say, well, wait a minute, something big did happen in the 13th century, and that was the rise of the Mongol Empire, which is the largest land empire in human history. Isn't that a coincidence? The largest land empire in human history seems to coincide with the largest pandemic in human history. Basically, I just started asking the question about whether or not our narrative of the Black Death might have an earlier phase. The biology of the genetics was insisting there is an earlier biological phenomenon that needs to be explained. And I was asking the question, are humans involved in that process? And the answer I came up with is yes. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. Earn up to 3% daily cashback on every purchase every day. Then grow it at 4.50% annual percentage yield when you open a savings account with Apple Card. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card subject to credit approval. Savings available to Apple Card owners subject to eligibility. Savings accounts provided by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, member FDIC. Terms apply eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. So let's run for a moment with Monica's theory that not only rodents but also humans were fundamental in spreading the plague, mirrored by the vast growth of the Mongol Empire. So how exactly would that work? Remember, we spoke in the last episode about different forms of plague. 
One of those was pneumonic plague, which attacks the lungs and is spread from person to person by droplets. Could pneumonic plague help explain how the disease suddenly spread so quickly across human populations? Pneumonic plague is when somebody is already infected, and it might even actually be your cat or your dog or something. So some animal, mammalian host, who you're close enough to breathe in when they cough or sneeze, so droplets. If somebody has plague that's uh, reached their lungs, they cough, it will be spread out. And so that's pneumonic plague. It's direct transmission from one infected person to, to another. The differences, and this is why it's important, is pneumonic plague getting immediately into your lungs is devastating. Bubonic plague uh, without antibiotic therapy. So half people um, infected die, half half the people recover. With pneumonic plague, it's almost 100% mortality rate. And it also kills in a shorter period of time. So basically from two to three days um, from the, the time you're infected through your lungs, you will be dead. So why is this important? Pneumonic plague actually is a human-to-human scenario of transmission. So one person getting sick and then infecting another. But it kills so quickly that you can infect your whole household very efficiently, but it's not an efficient way if you're you know, uh, out in a caravan and, and in any kind of, of traveling scenario, moving through mountains, moving through deserts. It's basically, it's going to burn out quickly because it's killing so quickly. So pneumonic plague is a possible mode of, of transmission through human populations, but not efficient. And again, look at a map. How much distance do we have to cover between Central Eurasia and the Black Sea and the Mediterranean? So if human-to-human transmission via pneumonic plague is unlikely, how else can we account for the spread? What I was trying to think about was how is there another mechanism of transmission that will be fairly efficient, that is connected to major movements of populations connected with the, the, the Mongols' wars and, and conquests, but doesn't involve humans. It involves humans, but it doesn't involve humans. And that's where I finally put a lot of pieces together and came up with army provisioning. And this idea of army provisioning ties in perfectly with what we know from the historical record about the spread of the Mongol Empire. But once we get into the 1250s and up through 1260, uh, the Mongols are moving through central Eurasia and get as far as Syria and at a certain point are threatening the Mamluk uh, regime in, in, in Egypt. They bring their own provisioning from the foothills of the Tian Shan Mountains. One of the texts that I found said, oh, yeah, and they're bringing this special kind of millet from uh, Regiristan. And so I, I spent, you know, actually weeks and weeks and weeks looking up the history of the different kinds of, of millet. And one of them is, is very special because it's kind of a superfood. They say, oh, yeah, this one kind of millet is so great. You can feed, feed a cup of it in the morning to a soldier and he will be good for the rest of the day. Also, you can brew beer with it. It was that one detail. I mean, it really was that one detail that all the other pieces of the puzzle fell into place. So you're provisioning an armor, you're transporting huge sacks of grain. Who loves 
huge sacks of grain, rodents. Are those rats? Are those another kind of rodent? I have no idea um, at this point. Archaeologically, rodents are very hard to establish in the material record because they're so small and their bones are fragile. This is a scenario. I don't have proof for this yet. And the geneticist might come along and say, okay, this is, this is a nice story, but it's completely wrong. But the point is, is that it satisfies what we, needs to be satisfied, getting the, the geography right, getting the uh, chronological period right, and then creating some scenario where the mechanism of transmission fits the, what we know about the biology of, of this disease. Developments like this could rewrite what we think we know about the spread and extent of the Black Death across the globe. Our traditional narrative of the Black Death tells a story of a focus of plague around the Black Sea and then moving into the Mediterranean and from there into Europe, uh, into North Africa. So Middle East, Europe, North Africa. That's part of what had always troubled me about the Black Death narrative is if you look at the map, there's no explanation about why the edges of the map are where they are. So if it's coming out of, let's say, the Caucasus, so the mountains that separate the Black Sea from the Caspian Sea, why doesn't it also move eastward? Why do we not have narratives about the Black Death in Central Eurasia? Why do we not have narratives about the Black Death in, in China, Tibet, or India? We still can't answer those questions, but what is clear is that because of prodding in part by me, historians of China are now going back and looking more closely at the records. A historian of Tibet has just published um, recently a, a, a study about the possible presence of a Black Death in Tibet. Central Eurasia is still a big question mark about what is what is happening there. Changing the chronology also means that we have to at least re-question the geography as well. The regular narratives about the Black Death are mostly coming from European sources. We also have documents from, from, from the Islamic world. And we found there's clear evidence for the presence of plague in Iraq, in Syria, and possibly also in Egypt in the 13th century. So almost 100 years before our regular narrative of the Black Death starts, plague has already moved across central Eurasia. The fact that Black Death cases have been uncovered in the 13th century is fascinating stuff. But nonetheless, by the time we reach the 14th century, things had clearly ramped up dramatically as sporadic outbreaks became a full-blown pandemic. What is clear is that what happens in the 14th century is different than anything I have documented uh, in, in the 13th century. And that nobody can explain yet. Because what I, what I have documented for the 13th century is sporadic plague outbreaks. Um, so certain situations, so the, 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 the siege of Baghdad, a really horrific scene of an outbreak of plague, and then more limited scenarios of, of plague reaching over to Damascus. But then it, it, it disappears. And again, that's not surprising that it disappears because, again, it's not a human disease. So that's then what is still puzzling about the 14th century is why is there 
systematic spread of plague. And the tentative argument that I can give right now is, uh, number one, grain supplies are clearly involved in the 14th century as well. This helps us to rethink some of the key moments in the traditional stories that are told about the spread of the Black Death. And one of those moments is the Siege of Kaffa. There, there's an old story. It, is, it actually is, comes from the 14th century, um, claiming that Mongols were besieging a city of, of Kaffa. According to this old story, the Mongols were marred by plague during military campaigns in the 1340s. Gabrielle de Moussi claims that while they were besieging the Genoese-run port city of Kaffa, they catapulted plague-ridden corpses into the city. I guess you could see it as an early form of biological warfare. The story goes that the residents of Kaffa were soon after afflicted by the disease. And many then fled to Europe, carrying, of course, the Black Death with them. But based on recent research by Professor Hannah Barker, Monica has a different take on events. So this was a, a, a merchant establishment of the Genoese, both Genoa and Venice in Italy had set up regular trade, trade infrastructures going between Italy and the Black Sea. And the big thing they're importing is grain. What Barker was able to establish is that the siege happened, a couple of sieges happened, and there was no outbreak of plague associated with the siege itself. It was only a year later, because after the siege, there was um, there were embargoes. This is like, we're not going to trade any grain and you can't, you can't sell your grain to these people. So there's this there's this kind of economic war going on, but it's only economic. And then in 1347, the, the, the embargoes get lifted. And then we start seeing plague moving because the, the grain shipments have started again. So it's those ships carrying the grain back to Italy, which is, is starving. It's a complicated story, but, but again, the pieces fit in terms of of the mechanics. Now the question is, which nobody can explain right now, is why all of a sudden were so many grain supplies contaminated with plague? What was moving it around? So is there just kind of a, a, a flurry of, of rodents? Are, is there a new kind of flea that's involved in the transmission? We have absolutely no information about that right now. And when plague did arrive in Europe, seemingly piggybacking on those grain shipments, the story is picked up by European chroniclers, many of whom have been highly influential in our retelling of how the Black Death first appeared. Everybody who's listening to this already has a narrative of the Black Death in their head because it gets taught kind of in every school, kind of probably in, in, in the world. It's, uh, again, the largest human disease catastrophe in, in history. How does this change the story? Well, the, cha- the story that they probably learned is, is probably, in essence, coming from Boccaccio and kind of other uh, writers of, of that period who are saying, you know, this disease suddenly arrived in Europe. It's being brought by boat and, it's, and then it's killing all of these people. Now, the difference is that now we have boats involved because now, we're, now it's moved into a geography where you know, we're, we're dealing with a, a maritime culture. So the speed of movement is suddenly inflated. The context of uh, a boat hold that is full of grain, again, rodent heaven. 
and if enough rodents survive the journey alive, so we're talking, you know, a couple of months to move across the Mediterranean. If enough of those rodents survive alive, that means that they're still they're still capable of crawling off the ship, taking their fleas with them. And where are they arriving? They're arriving into port cities. They're arriving into what are already urban congregations. The Mongols were nomads. The Mongols were always moving around. Whereas when plague comes into Europe, it's coming into to fixed urban environments, heavily populated urban environments, where there are already rodent infrastructures of, of rats. It's really striking a match uh, in Tinder that, that, that already exists in terms of the, the disease possibilities. What Europeans saw, what um, people in North Africa and the Middle East saw, was a sudden wave of a disease coming in, reaching a peak. Certain reports are talking about thousands of people dying even on single days. And that's likely because the, the disease is in a mnemonic. A phase where it's it's really being transmitted in households and and then in, again in a denser urban environment. Um, so that's that's what what is visible to them, and that's what we see in in our historical sources. This this massive disease, this this uh, the pestilence of death. That's an actual term that's um, that's often used in in Latin sources. We'll be digging into the experience of living through this pestilence of death in much more detail in future episodes. But for the moment, one of the key things to recognise is that the plague didn't just disappear after the 1340s. We need to understand that the outbreak we think of as the Black Death was just one of many outbreaks over the following centuries. I have made the transition to uh, accepting uh, a genetic, uh, an evolutionary understanding about pandemics. And that is that the pandemic is around as long as the pathogen is around, or at least that the pathogen is around in a way that can still threaten human populations. It comes back in the 1350s, lasting into the 1360s. But again, in the same way, it comes back in and it hits one town and then it hits another, but it doesn't persist. So it's, it's, it's terrifying. It becomes terrifying in this way because it's still incredibly lethal, but you don't know when it's going to strike again. So um, part of a big part of the research now that, again, the paleogeneticists are, are leading the way in this, is asking about the subsequent waves of plague. And what's clear is that whatever brought plague westward in the 13th century only brought it once, that the strains of plague that are involved in later 14th century, 15th century, 16th century, 17th century, 18th century, they're all from the same lineage. Between about the 1350s and the later 17th century, there was only one year where there was not a plague outbreak somewhere in Europe. I mean, that's how persistent it was. Uh, so there's a, there's a lot to be explained there about the long-term history of plague. Our modes of transportation, our modes of connection, our modes of communication are what any given pathogen is exploiting. So the successful pandemic pathogen 
will be the one that can most effectively exploit our mechanisms of travel, our mechanisms of migration, our mechanisms of exchange. What has SARS-CoV-2 done? It's exploited aviation. What did plague exploit in the 13th century and the 14th century? It exploited the fact that these different societies were already getting into these major, major investments in grain trade. That's the thing that we need to look at is what those commonalities are and the way that we as humans are creating the the mechanisms to allow the pathogens to spread. Next week, we'll be looking at the human impact of the Black Death, asking what it would have been like to live through the pandemic, how people responded to the crisis and the lengths that people went to to survive. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Jack Bateman. Additional checks by Rob Blackmore.